Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. All right, we are picking up in 2 Timothy chapter 3 today. Uh, We're going to be in verses 10 through 17. Last few weeks, uh, Pastor John Eric spoke to us about uh, what happens, what causes a person to walk away from Jesus, begin to drift away from Jesus. What is it that causes a person who at one point had a close walk with Jesus and relationship with Jesus to begin to drift away? There's a word for that, actually, that we use, and and I think Pastor John Eric used it the last two weeks, but I want to review that word. It's a big word, it's a husky word, so, you know, dial in for this one. Okay, when a person has a relationship with Jesus and then abandons that, the word for that is to apostatize, or we would describe that person as an apostate. Now, I don't really use that word in my normal, you know, day-to-day conversations. I don't say, oh, this person's an apostate, or, you know, this person hasn't been to church in a year. I hope they didn't apostatize. I don't really use that word. I just kind of say, I wonder where they've been. I hope they haven't turned their back on the Lord. But the word apostate is describing a person who who at one point was following Jesus, but then has turned their back on Jesus. You might say, well, isn't, aren't there apostates in the Bible, like apostate Paul and apostate Peter? I say, no, that's apostle Paul and apostle Peter. I know those words sound similar, apostle and apostate. They are not the same thing. In fact, they're almost exact opposites. An apostle was one of the early you know, pioneering founding fathers of the church and the Bible. An apostate is a person who has a relationship with Jesus and then turns their back on Jesus and walks away. Uh, An apostate is a person who abandons a religious belief or principle. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a friend or family member turn their back on Jesus? Someone who was walking closely with Jesus, who had a relationship with Jesus, and then they just kind of drifted away. I have had, uh, I hate to say it, but many friends that have done that. Um, friends that I had in high school, I went to a Christian college, and I am many times disappointed to see how many uh, friends that I took Bible classes with and prayed with and shared the gospel with and served with who have drifted away from their walk with Jesus. It's discouraging, it's disheartening. You kind of wonder what's going on in their life to cause them to do this, and, and this is what Pastor John Eric was addressing the last couple of weeks, is what, what really is going on when a person or a church or a culture falls away from faith in Jesus? So this morning, I actually want to talk to you about how to avoid that. How do we make sure that we, as followers of Jesus, don't lose our faith or fall away from Jesus or turn from Jesus or drift? Uh, if, if falling away is what happens to one person, then how do we not fall away? We stand firm. And I want to talk to you about two specific things that 2 Timothy 3 instructs us on regarding how we stand firm. And it, it's very simple. One is expect to suffer for Jesus. And the second is have a commitment to study God's word. 
If you can expect to suffer for Jesus and have a commitment to study God's word, you will not fall away. You will stand firm. We're going to get into those two things in a moment. Uh, I want to read from 1 Timothy, uh, sorry, this is 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 17. This will be on the screen for you as well. Paul is saying to Timothy, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So there are two primary things that cause a person to drift away from Jesus. The first is this, it's harder than they thought it was going to be. Following Jesus is just harder than they thought it was going to be. Some people come to Jesus and they think that coming to Jesus, is, it's going to fix everything. It's going to, I'm going to no longer be sick. I'm going to get a promotion at job. I'm going to get a new, at my job, I'm going to get a new car. I'll get a, you know, uh, a bigger house. Jesus is going to be the answer to everything I've ever wanted. And then they come to Jesus and realize, oh, this is Jesus who said, take up your cross and follow me. This is the same Jesus that said, you'll be hated by all men because uh, of me and because of my name. See, we kind of, I think, do people a disservice when we share the gospel with them in such a way to, to act like Jesus is the ticket that, that gets punched to give you everything you've ever wanted. Because that is not the gospel. And so when they sign up to follow Jesus because it's going to get them a promotion at their job and a bigger house and a better sex life, and then that thing, that, those things don't happen, they get disenfranchised and they turn away. Or... If it's not a discouragement and, and a realization that this is harder than they thought it was going to be, the other thing is we drift into some weird teaching. We drift into some strange beliefs. We start off with the basics. We get the basics right. We have the fundamentals. But then we begin to drift off into some strange beliefs. And uh, often that happens when we take the Bible and lower our uh, appreciation of or lower our view of Scripture. So this morning we're going to talk about those two things. Number one... Jesus told his disciples and his followers that they should expect suffering. And then also that they should have a commitment to study. And this passage addresses those two things. An ex expectation of suffering and a commitment to study. Verses 10 through 12, Paul starts off, he's speaking to Timothy. Remember, Paul's like the older, you know, uh, apostolic figure here. Timothy's like his uh, protege, kind of younger uh, pastor learning how to lead this church in Ephesus. Paul says, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, or Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Paul is saying to Timothy, remember, you followed me in these things, 
all these things. You followed me in my suffering. You followed me in my persecution. And then Paul lists Iconium, Antioch, and Lystra. Timothy is actually from Lystra. So Paul is saying, remember, Timothy, you were with me when I suffered in your hometown, when you were just a teenager, when your Christian mom and your Christian grandmother were teaching you the Bible, uh, the Old Testament. You were with me when I suffered in Lystra. So these stories of Paul's suffering, we don't have to speculate about these. They're actually in the Bible in Acts chapter 14. And I want to just review these really quickly. This will not be on the screen, so if you have a Bible, go to Acts chapter 14. I'm going to read, just review Paul's suffering in, in Lystra and in Iconium. Before I do that, I just want to give you a warning. This is very heavy stuff. Paul was a real person. I'm going to talk to you later about how Christians suffered under the Emperor Nero. I'm going to talk to you later about a man named Polycarp, who was the Bishop of Smyrna in the second century, and how they suffered for Jesus. This is heavy stuff, and it's been difficult for me to get through this stuff this week. But in Acts chapter 14, we see that in Iconium, this is verse 5, when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with the rulers to mistreat and stone Paul and his associates. In Iconium, they tried to stone Paul because he was preaching the gospel. What does it mean to stone a person? It means they wanted to kill him, and they tried to kill him. They would pick up rocks or stones and hurl them at you in public. A whole group of people would just pelt you with rocks and stones, hoping that someone would get a good headshot and knock you unconscious, and they would just pile up stones and rocks upon you and they would kill you that way and many people died that way and they actually wanted to do that to Paul in Iconium. They were unable to successfully do that but if they if they wanted to stone him how do you think they treated him? How do you think they spoke to him? I mean has anyone ever tried to take your life because of your faith in Jesus? This is what Paul experienced in Iconium and it actually gets worse in verse 19 He's in the city of Lystra or Lystra. This is Timothy's hometown. In verse 19, it says, The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. So in Iconium, they wanted to stone Paul. In Lystra, they did stone Paul. They took stones and rocks, hurled them at him, and they were so successful, they actually thought he was dead, they drug his lifeless body out of the city and left him for dead. They thought that they were successful, that they had killed this man for Jesus. And then what did Paul do? He regained consciousness, got back up, and went back into the city. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus tells his disciples, if you go to a city and they don't receive you or they reject you, you are allowed to leave that city, take off your sandals and brush the dust off of your sandals and shake out your cloak, shake the dust of that city off of you as a testimony or a witness against them that they rejected the preaching of the gospel. It's kind of this symbolic act that if if the disciples went into a city and preached the gospel and that city rejected them, they had the right to brush the dust off of them from that city and say, this is a sign to you that you have rejected the preaching of the gospel. Paul had the right to do that. 
He had permission from Jesus when he got stoned in Lystra to shake the dust off of himself as a testimony against that city and leave it. But what he did instead was shake the dust off and walk back in. So every Christian has permission, every Christian has the right that when you are at a job where you experience persecution for Jesus, you have a right to leave that job, shake the dust off against that employer. If you're in a relationship where you are being persecuted for your faith, if you're in a neighborhood where you're being persecuted for following Jesus, you have a right, according to Jesus, to shake the dust off and leave that place. You're allowed to leave situations where you experience persecution, but you don't have to. And Paul chose, instead of shaking the dust off and leaving the city, to shake the dust off and go back into the city because he, I I believe, that Paul considered the preaching of the gospel in Lystra to be more important than his own physical safety. So while he had a right to leave and say, I told you, your blood is on your hands now, and he had a right to do that, he instead went back into the city. So Paul knew that he was signing up for suffering. Why did Paul know that he was signing up for suffering? Because Paul himself inflicted suffering on many followers of Jesus. Remember, before the apostle Paul was the apostle Paul, he was this religious zealot who went around killing Christians, and now he has become a Christian. He knows what suffering Christians go through, uh, especially in this context and at this time. So, Paul tells Timothy to expect persecution. If we go back to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, the original passage that we're in here, verse 12 maybe should be uh, memorized and underlined in your Bible. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be persecuted, not could be persecuted, not it's possible. It's a promise. This is one of those precious promises of God that we pray in our prayer time. Oh, Lord, you promised that I would be persecuted. Now, I I don't think I've ever heard anyone claim this promise in a prayer meeting that they would be persecuted. But nonetheless, this is what it means when you respond to Jesus. This is the Jesus who said, you'll be hated by everyone because of me. That you'll have to take up your cross and follow me. That suffering and persecution Await that tribulation is going to be coming. And so uh, persecution has this ability to purify our motives. Why do we follow Jesus? You actually find out what you're passionate, passionate about through what you're willing to suffer for. The word passion means suffer. And you... The reason the word passion means suffer is what you're passionate about is what you're willing to suffer for. If you're not willing to suffer for something, you're not passionate about it. And uh, persecution has this ability to purify our motives and reveal what our passions really are. If our passions are comfort and ease and convenience, that will all be revealed when we go through persecution. But if our passion is really for Jesus, persecution will purify that passion and bring that to the surface and make that evident. So if, you're, if your motives for following Jesus are mixed, persecution will unmix that real quick. It'll, it'll make it clear why you're following Jesus. Persecution has the ability to purify. Persecution and suffering also have the ability 
to generate incredible spiritual power in your life. A.B. Simpson said it this way, suffering generates power through resistance, or power is developed through resistance. I mean, uh, for those of you, if anyone's ever exercised or lifted weights, how do you actually build more muscle? Through resistance. How does, uh, how is electricity generated? How is electric power generated? Through resistance. How is a rubber band uh, able to shoot, you know, a spit wad all the way up to the front of the classroom? Through the tension that's built up in that rubber band, right? Power is generated through resistance. If as a Christian you've never experienced any resistance in your walk with Jesus, you're probably not generating much power. But if you have to fight and push and kick and claw and scream and wrestle in your walk with Jesus, you are generating a lot of power. Your faith is going to be powerful. Does that make sense? So listen, I'm not telling you to go find ways to struggle. I'm not saying that you have to read your Bible upside down to make it just a little bit harder. Uh, you know, I'm just suggesting that don't hide from all the hard things. Don't run from challenges. Don't take the path of least resistance all the time. Understand that power is generated or developed through resistance. Now, I mentioned earlier that many times when people walk away from Jesus, they're doing so because they didn't expect it to be so difficult. And they didn't expect it to be difficult because when they heard the gospel, uh, they were sold a bill of goods. It was explained to them that, well, if you follow Jesus, everything in your life will fall into place. Uh, your marriage will be perfect. Your, you'll get a better job. You'll get a bigger house. Uh, A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, in the 1950s and 1960s, he noticed a trend where churches were constantly inviting famous athletes to the church to come share their testimony of faith in Jesus. So like a Christian athlete would come to churches, and A.W. Tozer, he, he is kind of critical of that, and he says, like, it's almost as if we think following Jesus is going to make us better at throwing a curveball or make us better at scoring a touchdown. Like, so when we present the gospel to people in this, like, Jesus will fix all of your problems way, and then they find out that following Jesus doesn't necessarily fix all your problems. In fact, it invites some suffering into your life. They say, well, that's not what I signed up for. And they bail. And they stop following Jesus. See, the reason we follow Jesus isn't because it, he makes our life better, although he does make our life better, but he makes it better in so many different ways, right? He gives purpose. He gives meaning. He doesn't give convenience and comfort. Uh, the reason that we're supposed to follow Jesus in a perfect scenario is because he is truly the only way to heaven. He is truly the manifestation of God and the world. And whether your life gets better or your life gets harder is uh, secondary because he is God, right? That's why we follow Jesus, not because of some subjective personal feeling, but because objectively, Jesus is the creator of the universe, and that's why we follow him. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's all revealed and clarified when we suffer for Jesus. And let's make sure that when we share the gospel with people, that we're not presenting it in such a way that, oh, if you follow Jesus, all your problems will be solved. Because they may actually be uh, invited into a life of suffering and persecution and hardship. And we need to say, 
Listen, you follow Jesus because uh, he's the creator of the universe. He has given you your identity. He made you. He's redeemed you from sin. He loves you. And you're going to be with him forever in eternity starting today. Instead of everything will be fine, everything will be good. Now, uh, I am concerned for many Christians, especially in the United States, that we are not prepared to suffer for Jesus. And I've said this, this will be the third time I've said this this year in 2020. I know that you won't suffer if you're not even willing to endure inconvenience. There's no way you'll be faithful in the face of persecution if you can't even handle inconvenience. Um, if, if the Holy Spirit prompts you at the grocery store to pay for the groceries of the person behind you, and you're not willing to do that, you will certainly not withstand persecution. If the Holy Spirit tells you to share the gospel with your neighbor, hey, here's an opportunity, this is the time to share the gospel, and you just stuff that voice of the Lord down, and you're not willing to be inconvenienced because that might put you 10 minutes behind schedule or that's a conversation that's uncomfortable or awkward, if you're not willing to be inconvenienced, you will, you will fold like paper when persecution comes. And if you don't stand in focused discipline when things are inconvenient, you will not stand in faithfulness when suffering comes. If you can't handle a sermon that goes a little too long or an air conditioner that only does 80% capacity or, you know what I mean? If you can't handle little, little tiny bumps in your Christian walk because it's inconvenient. I don't want to get up at 6 in the morning and read the Bible. Oh, prayer is so boring. If, first of all, you're doing it wrong if it's boring. But if you, if you can't handle the, the focused discipline that's necessary to overcome inconvenience, you will not be faithful in a time of suffering. I think that most people do not have a discipline issue, they have a focus issue. Because discipline is the result of focus. Discipline is what happens when you have a vision for a desired end that you want to see come, uh, come into reality. When you have a vision for something, when you have focus... The result of that is discipline. If you have focus on Jesus, discipline is the, uh, the outworking or the overflow of your focus on Jesus. Does that make sense? So lest I try to uh, put a heavy weight on you and say, discipline yourself, discipline yourself, that's actually not what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. Develop focus. Develop a vision for what your life in Jesus is going to look like. And the Bible actually tells us what it's supposed to look like is you becoming more like Jesus. That's the vision that God has for you. You might as well get on board with that. Otherwise, you're going to be fighting against God's vision for your life, uh, your entire walk with Jesus. But focus and discipline in the face of inconvenience prepares you for faithfulness in the uh, face of suffering. So... There's an expectation of suffering that Paul is preparing the church in Ephesus to have in verses 10 through 12. In verse 13, he makes a shift. He's no longer talking about preparing for suffering. Now he's talking about a commitment to studying God's word. Starting in verse 13, he says, Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
You, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, excuse me, equipped for every good work. Paul tells Timothy there's going to be imposters. We think of imposters as fakes, charlatans, people that are uh, pretending to be something that they aren't, and that is true, that's a correct way to understand imposter, but in this passage the word imposter means a wizard, a sorcerer, or an enchanter. See, these imposters aren't people that just have a slightly different uh, idea about a doctrine, not someone who just has a difference of opinion with the apostles. These are people who are actually trying to deceive and mislead the people in the church in Ephesus. And, you know, to use words like wizardry and sorcery and enchantment indicates that there's more going on here than just a debate about a Greek word or a Hebrew principle. There's there's more going on here. There's actually a supernatural act of deception that's going on here. They are like a wizard or a sorcerer or a magician. A magician's entire, uh, they'll say that all of magic relies on what's called sleight of hand, but it's all deception, right? It's misdirection and it's deception. Uh, And so that's what's going on here with these imposters. They're not just having a disagreement, but they're actually deceiving people and leading them astray. Now, Uh, Verse 15 is really important because it explains a little bit about Timothy's life. Verse 15, this is a little bit of a plug for children's ministry and the value of teaching children the Bible. Verse 15 says, From childhood you have known sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith uh, which is in Christ Jesus. When Timothy was probably five years old, his mother and his grandmother started teaching him the Old Testament scriptures, because remember, the New Testament hasn't been written yet, but he was learning, you know, Genesis through Malachi, the the poets and the Psalms and the Proverbs, things like that. So he's been getting familiar with God's word since he was probably about five years old. And look at the result of learning God's word from a young age. Paul says it leads to wisdom. Sometimes it, uh, I just, sometimes I think too much, and I'll, when I'm sitting down in my yard, like, uh, or in my desk, or whatever, reading the Bible, it just hits me, I'm not just reading an old book, this is an ancient text that has, that has uh, been through millennium, every continent, 40 different authors compiled the Bible. This is an ancient, this isn't old, it's ancient. It's 3,500 years old, parts of it. Even the the newest parts are 2,000 years old. This is ancient wisdom literature. I like the fact that every, every week my children are being taught ancient wisdom literature. That when my kids... When, when someone's teaching my kids, whether it's my wife or myself or one of our children's church teachers or whoever, when they're teaching them the Proverbs, that's a 3,000-year-old wisdom statement. 
that when they're being taught stories from uh, Exodus about Moses, they're being, get, getting 3,000-year-old leadership development. When they're hearing stories about Jesus, they're getting 2,000-year-old stories about Jesus healing the sick and casting out demons and dying for us. Teaching your children scripture will make them wise. Because the Bible has navigated 3,500 years, every culture, every continent, and it's still valuable. We still find wisdom in it. Not only does uh, teaching your children the Bible make them wise, it says it leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It's not impossible, but it is very difficult to lead a person to Jesus without incorporating some scriptural principles. I, I can't think of a way that you would do it. But as we teach our kids the Bible, and this is what happened in Timothy's life. He's five years old. He starts to learn the Bible. Uh, as we teach our kids the Bible, many of them find faith in Jesus through that. Certainly not all, but many find faith in Jesus through learning scripture. So it's important to get started young. Uh, I mean, obviously, you can't go back in time. And, uh, you know, if your kids are grown or older, you can't go back in time. But when we do have opportunities, we want to teach our children scripture from uh, an early age. Now, these imposters uh, are really, in a way, no match for Timothy because he's known God's word his entire life, really. And uh, look at verse 14. It says, continue in the things you've learned to become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. So Paul says to Timothy, hey, Timothy, you saw me suffer because I suffered in your hometown. When you were a young man, you saw this. Not only does Paul connect his suffering to what Timothy has firsthand experience with, but then he says, follow or continue in these teachings because you know the person that taught you. You have a relationship with the person that taught you. Paul, Paul was not a stranger to Timothy. Timothy wasn't learning the Bible from a stranger. He wasn't, uh, you know, reading books and watching sermons from someone whom he'd never met, but he was actually able to look into Paul's life. I think it's important for us as Christians to know the people that are teaching us the Bible, whether that's myself or Pastor John Eric or one of our discipleship group leaders or just a friend that you have that's a Christian who you study the Bible together with. It's important to be able to look into the lives of the people that are teaching you the Bible. Now, do I still read? I'm still going to read books and listen to sermons and stuff from people I've never met, absolutely, but I'm going to make sure that that's not the primary way that I'm learning the Bible, that the primary way that I'm learning the Bible is through people that I have relationships with. My, I've mentioned him on many occasions. My favorite pastor or Bible teacher is a, is a man named Fred Hartley. I got to meet, Fred, Fred's written about 20 books. Um, he's the president of the College of Prayer. He's a pastor in Atlanta. I got to meet Fred a few years ago and, uh, have developed a friendship with him, and I've been to his home, I know his kids, I know his wife. I'm able to look into his life, not just read his books, not just listen to his sermons and podcasts, but know him. And I know that what he teaches is consistent with who he is as an individual. So when Paul says to Timothy, you know from whom you have learned these things, he's implying the importance of having a personal relationship. Now, 
this commitment to study scripture, you know, we want to avoid the imposters, we want to teach our children the Bible. Verse 16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture is inspired. That word inspired in Greek is theopneustos. It means God breathed. It means that scripture is different from every other piece of literature because God breathed on it. Uh, Second Peter uh, describes how scripture was written. It says, men who were moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Now, sometimes you might get into a discussion with someone and they'll say, oh, you can't trust the Bible. Uh, it was written by men. So you can't trust the Bible. You should trust you know, science or philosophy or something like that because the Bible was written by men. So instead, you should trust this science book, which was written by men. Right? I feel like people don't think that argument all the way through. Uh, if, yeah, well... Yeah, so if, if the Bible's unreliable because it was written down by human beings, which it was, I'm not denying that, then everything's unreliable. What makes the Bible different is not it, that who wrote it, it's who inspired it. Yes, human beings wrote the Bible down. We have this, sometimes this mythical idea that God reached down from heaven and you know, wrote the book of you know, Ecclesiastes with his finger. He didn't do that. Aside from the Ten Commandments, there's nothing God wrote with his finger. He used human beings to write the Bible. That's not what makes the Bible unique. What makes the Bible unique is who inspired it. See, every other text is written by men, inspired by men. But the Bible is written by men, inspired by God. And that's why we know that it's authoritative, that it's unique, that it's different. Uh, that these men who wrote the Bible, they weren't writing their own thoughts, they weren't writing their own ideas. Uh, they were using their own language, but they were moved by the Holy Spirit to write these things. There's something to learn about God there. I mean, that God would use human beings to write the Bible, that God would take on the form of a man in Jesus. I mean, everything God does, he does in cooperation with humanity. Even when Jesus did miracles, when you know, the apostles did miracles, God was using a human vessel to do these things. And so what makes scripture unique is that it is inspired by God. Our church says it this way in our doctrinal statement. The Old and New Testaments, inerrant as originally given, were verbally inspired by God and are a complete revelation of his will for the salvation of humanity. They constitute the divine and only rule of Christian faith and practice. The Bible is our rule of what we believe and how we live. That's what faith and practice means. What will we believe? Only that which agrees with what's in Scripture. And what will we do? Only that which, uh, which agrees with that which is in Scripture. That's, how, that's our standard for faith and practice. The Bible is a measuring rod for us. You read another book, you listen to another person, and you take the Bible as your measuring rod, right? Does, does what this pers person is saying measure up to what's in here, right? Is that how we are supposed to think? Yes, the answer is yes. That's how we're supposed to think. It's the measuring rod. The Hebrew word for measuring rod is kana, which we transliterate to canon, the canon of Scripture. The measuring rod of Scripture is the thing that we use to evaluate. So you might have your favorite talk talk radio host or uh, talk show host or whatever, if they don't measure up to scripture, 
then what they're saying is an authoritative. All right, really quickly, I want to try to wrap up here. I want to conclude by bringing things back around to those who both had a commitment to study and an expectation of suffering. Did you know that 91% of Jesus' disciples died for their faith in Jesus? 91%. See, we, we, I think, at least in the United States, we see persecution and suffering as kind of this like, well, it, it might happen, but it's rare. It might happen once, once in a while every now and then. 91% of Jesus' disciples died for their faith in Jesus. The only one that didn't die for his faith in Jesus died locked, uh, exiled on an island in prison. There was such persecution in the early church that it's been so well recorded in even secular history. There's an emperor named Nero. Many of you have probably heard of Nero. Famous story about Nero is that he, he was basically insane. He burned down Rome. It burned for three days. While Rome was burning, he went up on the roof of his palace, his home, and he played the fiddle. Well, it turns out the people of Rome didn't like that. I guess he didn't see that coming. Turns out the people of Rome didn't like that. And when he needed a scapegoat to blame that on, he blamed the Christians. So everyone turned on the Christians, and intense persecution broke out. Within 35 years of Jesus' death, the persecution of Christians under the emperor Nero had gotten incredibly severe. Nero would take the skins of wild animals and sew them onto the bodies of Christians. He would sew up Christians in the skins of wild animals so that they would be chased and attacked by dogs. And the dogs would rip apart the Christians. Others were dressed in shirts that were covered with wax. They were then attached, tied to trees, and set on fire as torches to light Nero's garden at night. So when he would walk through his garden at night, it was lit by burning Christians. He may turn them into human candles, essentially, by covering them in wax. The persecution at this time did not make the church shrink. It actually made the church grow. Now, I've been to more church growth seminars and conferences than I can think of that give you tricks on, and little tips on how to grow a church. Persecution was never one of them. Yet the church grew in the midst of persecution in the uh, first century. People were, came to Jesus because they saw the bravery on the faces of those who suffered in his name. And it was in the course of the persecution under Nero that both Peter and Paul were killed. There's a man named Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. This is in around 155 AD. So you're talking 120 years after Jesus' death when, uh, when Polycarp died. Polycarp was actually mentored by the Apostle John. So he, Polycarp didn't know Jesus, but he knew Jesus' disciples. Polycarp was the last living person to personally know one of the original disciples. He became the Bishop of Smyrna. Smyrna's in modern-day Turkey. The Bishop of Smyrna's job was to oversee all the churches in the area. This was before becoming a bishop meant you got a nice... Uh, nice car and fancy clothes and a big gold cross to wear around your neck. This is back when becoming a bishop meant that you didn't get nice things, you got a target on your back. 
When, the, uh, when Polycarp heard that the authorities were looking for him, he hid. After being discovered, those that came and arrested him, he gave them lunch. And he asked, can I have one hour to pray, uninterrupted? I'll go into this room, there's no windows, I can't escape, just give me one hour to pray. And they gave him that hour. He prayed for two hours instead. The officers who arrested him had such a guilty conscience that they later regretted arresting Polycarp. They brought Polycarp to the proconsul and gave him an opportunity to reject Jesus or he would be killed. In those days, the way that you would show that you were rejecting Jesus is you would burn incense to the Roman gods. They would bring you a bowl of incense and you had to light it, you had to burn it. And they would smell that incense. Well, so many Christians were choosing rather to die instead of burn the incense that the the Roman proconsul started to offer compromises. Okay, you don't have to burn the whole bowl, just just take a pinch. Just burn a pinch of incense and we'll let you live. When it came to Polycarp, they said, Polycarp, okay, just a pinch. And he said, I won't do a pinch. They said, just one pinch grain of incense like what it's a grain of sand we'll take it and we'll put it in someone else's bowl as a sign that you've rejected jesus and you can save your life polycarp said this for 86 years i've served jesus and he has never once done anything wrong to me how then shall i blaspheme my king who has saved me They threatened Polycarp with wild beasts. They said, we'll release wild beasts on you. Polycarp said this, bring on the beasts. He was not willing to bend on this. So they decided that they were going to burn Polycarp at the stake. They took him into the Roman Colosseum. He's surrounded by thousands of people. He's decided not to light incense to the Roman gods. He's decided not to compromise. He's decided not to renounce Jesus. He's the opposite of an apostate. They take him in and they they start to tie him to a pole and he says, you don't have to tie me here, I'll stand still. They surround him with wood. They light it on fire. This is very well documented historically. All the witnesses present said the flames would not go near him. They arched over him and formed a dome. And he just stood there surrounded by the flames and wouldn't get burned. So, eventually they gave orders to the executioner, then just stab him with a sword. So the executioner got up close to the flames, stabbed him through the flames, put a sword in Polycarp's side, so much blood came out that it extinguished the fire. He bled to death, he did die. His blood, steaming, from the ashes. Normally when someone was burned at the stake in the Roman Colosseum, the entire place was filled with the smell of rotting, uh, burning flesh. Everyone that was present when Polycarp was killed said they smelled incense. That there was an offering made to a god, and the god was Jesus. They didn't smell burning flesh, they smelled the incense of the offering that Polycarp was making to Jesus. These stories that I've shared with you are found in Fox's Book of Martyrs, which was written in the 1500s, if you want to check that out. It's a little hard to read. It sounds like Shakespeare somewhat. But uh, 
it's worth checking out. I have books on my shelves full of stories of martyrs. Can I challenge you with something, and then I'm going to bring our worship team up to close. As a church, as individuals, as Christians, we need to decide who our heroes are going to be. Who our Christian examples are going to be. And nowadays, it's mostly musicians and megachurch pastors and authors. And I think our heroes need to be martyrs and missionaries. If you can name ten worship leaders and ten megachurch pastors, but you can't name one missionary or one martyr, maybe that's why we're in the state that we're in. We need, to, we need more stories about, like, Polycarp. We need stories about missionaries who risked everything to go bring the gospel to places where the gospel hadn't reached yet. And so I want to encourage you to begin to familiarize yourself with stories of martyrs. I'm going to uh, share in our church Facebook group this week a really lengthy uh, YouTube playlist from a, a ministry called Open Doors USA. It's just five-minute YouTube videos of martyrs and missionaries, and you can watch through that. They have them in countries all over the world, and you can just be encouraged by that. These are more, more modern uh, people that have given their lives for the Lord. But I, I think the church will experience renewal and revival when our, when our heroes are martyrs and missionaries, not musicians and megachurch pastors. Does that make sense? Let me bring the worship team up. They're going to lead us in a song. I want to pray for us, and they're going to uh, conclude for us. Jesus, you used Paul and Timothy's life to provoke in him a willingness or an expectation that he would have to suffer, that there would be a cost associated with following you, and also to develop a commitment to studying your word. Ask Jesus that those two things would be established in us today, that we would have a commitment to your word, to study it, to not be misled, to not be deceived, to not be drawn away. Also give us, Jesus, a willingness to suffer for you because you are worth it. Even the uncomfortable, awkward, unpleasant moments that we experience because of our faith in you, they still don't take away from your worth and your value. And so Jesus, prepare us to be faithful in the days of suffering. I pray that in your name, Jesus. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.